Welcome to Common Ground, a talk show encouraging debate and a deeper understanding of hot-button topics in Berlin and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Germany and the United States are doing something they haven't done in many years, taking a unified stance on China. Senior producer Dina El-Sayed explains. March was a month of cooperation between the Western allies, even on topics as contentious as China. They joined together to impose sanctions on Beijing over its abuse of the country's Uyghur population, which White House spokeswoman Jen Psaki discussed during a news conference. We are certain that uh, the Chinese are noting that we are working much more closely with our allies and partners than had happened over the last four years. EU foreign policy chief Josep Borrell told journalists Chinese counter-sanctions wouldn't weaken the bloc's resolve. There will be no change in the European Union determination to defend human rights and to respond to serious violations and abuses irrespective of where they are committed. Their comments were followed by reports of Burrell and his U.S. counterpart Antony Blinken meeting to relaunch the stalled China dialogue. But Brussels isn't keen on being part of any perceived anti-China alliance, preferring to simultaneously embrace Beijing as a partner, economic competitor and, quote, systematic rival. Even Germany, which cares more than most in the 27-member bloc to resume close ties with Washington, hesitates when it comes to U.S. calls to deliberately dismantle trade with China. German Foreign Minister Heiko Maas reiterated that stance at the Brookings Institution during a visit in early March to Washington. We told the previous administration many times that decoupling doesn't work in an interconnected world since we all face the same global challenges. Diplomacy means engaging with difficult actors, especially where this is in our interest. It's not that Maas doesn't stand up to China. Last fall, the German foreign minister publicly chided his Chinese counterpart for threatening the Czech Senate speaker over his visit to Taiwan. Maas told the Chinese foreign minister at a news conference that Europeans stand shoulder to shoulder and that, quote, threats have no place here. But once the international outcry over human rights abuses in China fades, disagreements between Washington and Berlin will likely resume over how to engage with Beijing. A survey commissioned shortly before last Christmas by the weekly Welt am Sonntag found nearly four-fifths of German respondents favored not interfering in any dispute between the United States and China. That was senior producer Dina El-Sayed. Joining me via Zoom to discuss U.S. and German tensions over China are Noah Barkin, who is a senior visiting fellow with the German Marshall Fund's Asia program, as well as managing editor of Rhodium Group's China Practice, and Glacier Kuang, a political and digital rights activist from Hong Kong who is a columnist and also a doctoral student at the University of Hamburg. Welcome to you both. Hi, Hi Thank you. Glacier, let me start with you. Do you see the recent sanctions imposed on China as a good start? Are they effective? It's surprising that the European Union has finally decided to sanctions on Chinese officials accused of human rights abuses in East Tagushan last week. It's worth noting that uh, although the sanctions are being announced, um, European Union are still quite eager to conclude the CAI, which is the investment deal between China and the EU. And it's weird that on one hand, the Union decided to proceed with negotiations of concluding the deal, but on the other hand, is condemning China for its human rights violation. 
And I think on the other hand, because、um, Beijing immediately responded with retaliation sanctions, Beijing is kind of sabotaging its own chances of concluding the deal smoothly. Because I don't think it's likely that the European Parliament would be very happy to. Uh, proceed with the deal when some of its own members are being sanctioned. So I'm really looking forward to see what's gonna come, and I don't believe that the CCP will back down under the accusations of democratic states, given its track records. So I'd say Beijing has somehow undone this effort made in the past to establish good relationship with Europe, and Beijing will no longer be seen as a very cooperative strategic partner by the European Union as before. So I am really looking forward to see how will European Union further react to the retaliation. And how will、uh, the U.S. and the EU somehow cooperate in terms of、uh, making a tougher stance against China? Do you think, though, the fact that there is this sort of united front at the moment and this united anger that this may spur the Bundestag into acting on your earlier petition to address Chinese actions in Hong Kong? I think for the German Bundestag to act, it will take them some time because there is no national level Magnitsky Act at the moment, and it is quite difficult for them to impose individual sanctions without this kind of legislation that is available for them to adopt.、Uh, so I'd say Germany would possibly review its policy with China,、uh, for example, its economic dependency on the Chinese market. Or how it's it communicating or negotiating with China when it comes to human rights issues, but I don't see the German Bundestag reacting very quickly to the petition that I started last year and had a hearing this January in the Bundestag. I think it will still take them a lot of time to somehow、uh, come with a very concrete、uh, strategy to be tougher against China in that sense. Noah, do you agree? I mean, do you think these sanctions are effective? Because as Glacier was mentioning,、uh, obviously the European and China trade deal is sort of up in the air in the moment because of the tensions that have emerged since、uh, the sanctions were announced. Well, I think these sanctions are mainly symbolic. We're talking about travel bans and asset freezes for four individuals and one、uh, entity, the Public Security Bureau in Xinjiang. But the sanctions send a powerful signal, and I think that's why we've seen. China reacts so fiercely. The first sanctions that Europe has imposed since、uh, Tiananmen Square in 1989. I don't think anyone believes that these sanctions are going to force China to change its behavior in Xinjiang. It's more about sending a signal to China that the EU, the United States, Canada, Australia, a number of countries find、uh, what's happening in. Xinjiang unacceptable, and when it comes to the comprehensive agreement on investment, you know I think there were concerns、uh, before these tensions over the sanctions about whether the European Parliament was going to approve this deal. Berlin and Paris had been、uh, pushing Beijing to agree to binding measures to end forced labor. ILO conventions、uh, in order to get this through the parliament, and now with the sanctions row, as Glacier mentioned, targeting members of the European Parliament across、uh, the political spectrum and across a number of Europe, major European countries—Germany, France, the Netherlands—it's、um, going to make it very difficult for this deal to pass through the European Parliament. So. Right now, it looks like it's going to be a very hard sell unless China reverses course, and that's hard, hard to envision、uh, at the moment. 
Well, as Dina mentioned in her story, there are limits to how far Berlin and Brussels are willing to go with regards to China. Noah, has that line moved since Joe Biden became president? Well, I mean, I don't think uh, Biden's uh, victory changed Europe's uh, view of how it should approach China. Certainly, it increases the potential for transatlantic cooperation because uh, this simply wasn't possible under the Trump administration, which was busy going after the Europeans on a range of issues at the same time that it was confronting China. Joe Biden sitting in the White House allows the U.S. and Europe to sit down at the same table. And we're seeing that just this week with Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, passing through Brussels. They're not going to agree on everything, but it allows them to sit down at the table and perhaps develop a better understanding for the other's views and uh, to begin to develop a joint approach, which will not be a big package. Um, It won't be seamless cooperation. Uh, It will be close cooperation on some issues and other issues. You know, there'll be difficulty in agreeing a common approach on other issues, particularly around sort of exports of sensitive technologies, uh, trade issues. But certainly this, uh, you know, having a president in the White House who has vowed to repair ties with Europe makes it a lot easier for the two sides to discuss China. Glacier, there was that recent nasty exchange between China's foreign minister and the U.S. Secretary of State in Anchorage. And I'm wondering if you see that as a sign that the Biden administration is actually going to be tough on China. Or do you think that Donald Trump would have been better at keeping Beijing in check? I don't think the exchange uh, between the Chinese delegations and the U.S. delegations in Alaska would push Joe Biden to react strongly. Of course, there is tension during that dialogue. They're having a lot of very nasty exchange. That's true. But I don't think that would generally affect Joe Biden's uh, approach when it comes to China. And when you ask me to compare Donald Trump and Joe Biden, I actually don't think Trump did a good job at keeping China at bay. And of course, he had a lot of very tough sanctions and a lot of retaliations against China, no matter it is in a trade war or it's when it comes to Hong Kong and other uh, human rights issues. But I don't think Trump has created a positive impact in the world when it comes to keeping China at bay, because Trump somehow is destroying the transatlantic relationship, as Noah has said, because when Joe Biden comes to power, it is more likely that the European Union and the U.S. can sit on the same table and talk about things. But when it comes to Trump, he's somehow sabotaging that possibility of cooperation. So I don't say Trump did a really good job, but somehow in Hong Kongers' eyes, Trump might seem to be doing more things because there are actual sanctions. Um, they're talking about really toughening up on China. But when it comes to actual policies like the Safe Harbor Act and other things that is uh, offering Hong Kongers, for example, safe passage outside of Hong Kong, I don't think the Trump administration have done like really amazing job because some of the bills are defeated. And of course, there are bills that are being passed like sanctions and the Hong Kong Democracy Act. So I'd say I think Trump did somehow a good job in having a gesture. That is, he will not tolerate China when it comes to uh, human rights or political issues, but he's somehow also sabotaging the possibility of cooperation when it comes to cooperating with the European Union to keep China at bay. 
In terms of Hong Kong, though, I mean, obviously, these sanctions that were just imposed deal with the Uyghurs. Do you feel that Hong Kong is sort of being left behind in the discussions, uh, either by the U.S. or Europe, when it comes to putting pressure on China over human rights? I think the European Union is somehow a, not very willing to touch on Hong Kong when it comes to imposing sanctions at this point, because it's more sensitive than what is happening in in Xinjiang or East Turkestan to say. What is happening in East Turkestan have been defined as genocide by many countries. So to follow suit and impose sanction regarding the human rights violation in the re-education camps or surrounding issues on ethnic minorities are actually not very sensitive when it comes to uh, the global trend. But when they're imposing sanctions on uh, regarding the situations that are happening in Hong Kong, then they will be seen by China as really siding with the U.S. Because I'd say the European Union is still somehow reluctant to take side uh, when it comes to dealing with China. They are very reluctant to be associated with any anti-China alliance. So I say they are somehow not really willing to impose sanction when it comes to Hong Kong. And for the U.S., I think the U.S. have been very open when it comes to sanctioning Hong Kong officials and so on, because Hong Kong has this very specific strategic value to both China and the U.S., and Hong Kong is somehow like a proxy or like the battleground for both of these countries to compete in that sense. So I'd say the U.S. is more willing to sanction Chinese and Hong Kong officials. But when it comes to the European Union, I think they're somehow refraining to do so. But maybe in the future, they will expand their individual sanctions against Hong Kong officials when it comes to national security law and their human rights violations, too. Noah, Chancellor Angela Merkel says she wants Europe to preserve its alliance with Washington while charting its own path with Beijing. Is that even doable? Well, I think there will always be differences in the U.S. and the European approach to China. You know, the U.S. is the incumbent superpower. It's being challenged by a rising China. Europe doesn't feel threatened in the same way as the U.S. does. Uh, The U.S. sees this relationship through a hard security prism. Uh, It has you know, a presence in the Indo-Pacific, alliances with countries like Japan, South Korea. Well, I think Europe sees this relationship still primarily through an economic prism. So these are fundamental differences, I think, which will lead to a different approach. But I do think Europe will be under increasing pressure from both sides, and it will find it more difficult going forward to chart its own course. We saw this over the past years on the issue of 5G and whether to allow Chinese suppliers like Huawei to build uh, next generation uh, mobile networks. Europe found itself uh, under severe pressure from both sides and it's ending up in a place that is not too different. If you look at the major countries, Uh, from where the U.S. is. So this 5G issue, this is going to be multiplied across a range of other issues in the years to come. Uh, It's going to be more difficult for Europe to sort of sit on the fence. It's going to be pulled by both sides. uh, And I think it's going to be very difficult to say no to a Biden administration, uh, which is vowing to uh, repair ties with Europe and work with other democracies uh, to promote, you know, common values, common approaches on technology, 
trade, etc. So Europe would like to chart its own way, but it's going to be much more difficult, I think, in the coming years to do so. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be back with more on the U.S. and German dosido on China. Stay tuned. Democracy. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund, one of the hosts of the German Marshall Fund's podcast, Out of Order. Join our conversations with leaders and experts on what the dark side of tech does to democracy, how the pandemic shapes geopolitics, and other topics of global order and disorder. You can find our episodes and miniseries at gmfus.org or wherever you find your podcasts. We are the German Marshall Fund of the United States, strengthening transatlantic cooperation since 1972. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, the host of Common Ground. And I'm Dina El Sayed, the senior producer. Each week, we bring you a new lively discussion on a hard hitting topic. If you want to learn more about our podcast, check out our website at commongroundberlin.com. The episodes are free to download, but they aren't free to create. Common Ground depends on grants as well as donations from listeners like you. So if you want to help us out, please click on the donate button at commongroundberlin.com. And thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. I'm Maurice Frank, editor of the Berliner Zeitung English Edition, which is a proud partner of Common Ground. Is it hard for you to figure out what's going on in Berlin because everything you read or hear is in German? We at Berliner Zeitung English Edition can help, providing you with all the news you can use in English, whether on politics, business, or culture. We also offer riveting interviews and commentary. Look for us at berliner-zeitung.de slash en or just type in Berliner Zeitung English Edition into your search engine. I look forward to seeing you there. Welcome back to Common Ground, where we are talking with Noah Barkin of the German Marshall Fund Asia Program and Hong Kong native and activist Glacier Kuang about the U.S.-German tensions over China. As we've mentioned, the decoupling that Donald Trump and many in Congress have called for is something German officials oppose. But Noah, is the EU-China trade deal, or Comprehensive Agreement on Investment as it's formally known, the right thing for Germany and Brussels? Well, I think what has surprised many people about Europe's decision to proceed with this deal is that it comes after a year in which China has shown increasingly uh, aggressive behavior towards Europe uh, during the pandemic, uh, mask diplomacy, so uh, using uh, China's uh, leverage as a major producer of masks, for propaganda purposes and for political influence in Europe. We've seen these wolf warrior diplomats attacking European countries that uh, criticize China on various issues, particularly the Hong Kong question. So I think after a year in which um, China has grown much more assertive, much more provocative, uh, also with countries like Australia, India, Canada, it was a surprise to many people that this agreement was pushed through by German Chancellor Angela Merkel uh, in the final weeks of 2020. Uh, there are big questions about whether this deal is going to be approved. Uh, is it in Europe's interests? 
it gives Europe some additional market access in China, um, but it's really an incremental deal. And it looks increasingly like uh, the approval of this deal is really up in the air. Uh, we'll have to see how things develop over the coming months. If Europe and China uh, can sort of de-escalate this sanctions row, but clearly if these tensions remain uh, as they are today, this deal is probably dead in the water. Glacier, you obviously are not a great fan of the trade deal. What do you think it does to Europe's ability to pressure Beijing when it comes to human rights? When it comes to the trade deal, I think the first thing that I notice is there is a lack of robust and vigorous human rights impact assessment or any human rights clauses or obligations in effect to provide a balance because dealing with China, given its notorious human rights track record, it doesn't make any sense that it never occurred to the union that such a human rights clause is needed as they have included in the deal with Vietnam. And on the other hand, I don't think it's a good deal for European entities too, because it doesn't provide a level playing field for European enterprises that are entering the Chinese market. And when it comes to the treatment difference in China when it comes to state-owned enterprises or ordinary private entities. I think it has to be pointed out that a lot of Chinese enterprise, although they are not state-owned, are actually controlled by party members. So favorable treatments are still going to be given to them and it is not going to be very beneficial for European entities. And also because there are a lot of laws in China that are actually hindering um, the business operation of European entities that are in China. For example, they have this latest investment law that provides that the Chinese government have the right to review or even block some of the business operations of foreign entities when it comes to national security. And it covers not only sensitive industry, it covers investment and a lot of other things. So it's going to be very um, dangerous for European entities to simply enter the Chinese market when insufficient protection are provided. And also the provisions of the cybersecurity law in China, in particular those that require data localization of all companies, that is the local storage of data collected within China um, and all other things that um, comes with the lack of rule of law in China. It's going to put the European entities in a very dangerous position when they enter the Chinese market, given that investment deal seems to be kind of beneficial to European entities. So I'd say it's not a good deal and it lacks human rights considerations. And on the other hand, it's giving Chinese government a false sense of legitimacy to continue to do what they're doing, no matter it is in East Turkestan or other places. Noah, you heard what Glacier said. Are Europe and the United States just too dependent on the Chinese market to effectively be able to pressure Beijing? I mean, is this why the deals are so important to them? Or what do you think is going on there? I think China is certainly banking on the power of its economy, the allure of its vast market to use that leverage to pressure uh, countries in Europe and elsewhere. You know, over the past few years, as we saw this very aggressive campaign by the Trump administration, uh, all the talk about decoupling uh, we still haven't seen major shifts out of China by European companies, uh, by American companies. So I think the economic links between Europe and China, between the US and China, 
are going to remain, although the Trump administration sometimes gave the impression that the U.S. could just sever its economic ties with China completely. Uh, that's, I think, unrealistic. China is the second biggest economy in the world. But it's about mitigating the risks from that economic engagement, um, taking a more vigilant approach to transferring sensitive technologies, uh, to investing in certain sectors with uh, national security implications, taking a more restrictive approach to Chinese investment in Europe and the United States. So it's like unscrambling scrambled eggs. I don't think you're going to get a perfect decoupling of Europe or the United States from China. But I think what you will see over the coming years, and the Biden administration has, I think, made this pretty clear in its first months in office, uh, that they're going to take a more, uh, you know, perhaps a more nuanced approach than the Trump administration, but they are going to be looking very closely at their supply chains. Uh, they're going to be looking very closely at what they export to China. And I think we're going to see Europe doing the same thing over the coming years and, and working more closely with the U.S. to agree a common understanding of what kind of economic interactions with China uh, are safe don't pose national security risks, and those which do need to be looked at more closely and perhaps be subject to greater restrictions. Glacier, obviously we've seen that the sanctions that were announced, and they haven't been that frequent, as uh, Noah pointed out, this is the first time since Tiananmen Square that the EU has imposed anything, or the United States, or Canada for that matter, if I'm not mistaken. And there, there is a lot of back and forth. You know, you have the Chinese now with their own sanctions, imposing their own sanctions. In the end, I'm just wondering, what are the most effective steps that Germany and the United States could take to make Beijing change its approach to human rights within China? I actually don't have like a very concrete answer to that question, because if I know what's going to be very effective, I would be charging at that goal like full speed. But I'll try to share my thoughts on that. Changing how countries, no matter it is the United States, it's the United Kingdom or European Union is seeing China as a very fundamental step towards um, somehow making China care about human rights, because we do see China being extremely aggressive when it comes to democratic countries accusing China for human rights violation. It always gets to them and always um, make them extremely furious when it comes to like diplomacy or other occasions. And I think the world should stop seeing China or the Chinese market as simply benefits that they should have access to because when it comes to trading with China now, I think money and conscience, you only get to keep one. I'm not saying we should completely decouple from China because as Noah said, that's impossible and it's not realistic at all. I would be extremely naive to suggest the world should just stop trading with China. But I think the world should um, think about when it comes to China, they cannot just play by Chinese rules because if you enter the Chinese market, then you have to somehow comply to their set of political correctness standards. Like you cannot talk about Taiwan, you cannot support Hong Kong, and you cannot talk about the re-education camps in East Turkestan and so on. I think the Western world have to make it very clear that these are the bottom lines. Human rights is the bottom line that they will not compromise. Because China is very good at divide and conquer, and 
when it comes to the European Union and the United States, it's particularly clear. Chinese government has obviously chosen America to be its primary enemy, and so that it will somehow try to lure European Union into its pocket, so that it has more strength when it comes to combating the U.S. and European Union won't be standing in the way in that sense. So I'd say、um, changing the perspective of what, how do policymakers perceive China is very important. Policymakers, especially, should not only take the economic benefits in mind when they are drafting trading policies or political policies when it comes to China, because it is just gonna harm their own country after all. When you look into the Belt and Road Initiative, you see that China is actually using investment to. Uh, have a lot of countries under its influence, so it becomes very difficult for them to stand up against China when it comes to their own national security and other issues. So I'd say every country has to be very cautious when it comes to drafting policies with China, and I hope that's a start、uh, to try to force China to change、um, its policy when it comes to human rights. Because when every country is making a very clear statement that human rights is the one principle that they will never compromise. Then China, in order to stay powerful and strong in the world, they will have to somehow at least show a gesture that they will deal with that issue. And I believe that's when change start to happen. Noah, what steps do you think would be most effective for Brussels, Berlin, and Washington, for that matter, to be able to put pressure on China when it comes to human rights? Well, I think we've seen it over the past week. They need to act together. We haven't seen that over the past few years.、Uh, the Trump administration had a sort of mixed record on human rights. Obviously, the U.S. Congress and certain members of the administration spoke out very strongly, but we all know that President Trump did not see this as a top priority. So, working together, the U.S., Europe, other allies—Japan, India, Australia—to、uh, send a joint signal in the direction of. Beijing, you know, ultimately, other countries, whether in Europe, the U.S., or elsewhere, have to show that they're willing to pay an economic price for standing up for their values, and、uh, that's absolutely essential. I think that is what has been missing in Europe in recent years. There's been a lot of talk about human rights. But when push came to shove, Europe was not willing to speak out or go beyond rhetoric and take concrete measures. We're actually seeing that changing now. These、uh, sanctions were unveiled by Brussels, targeting officials linked to、um, abuses in Xinjiang.、Um, so. If Europe and the U.S. and other allies can move in lockstep. That is, I think, the biggest way to change China's behavior, or at least send China a message that this is not acceptable, and that there will be consequences for this kind of behavior. And I have one last question for both of you,、um, and if you can keep your answers a little short, because we're running out of time. The U.S. wants Europe to follow its lead on China. Europe wants to chart its own path to some extent, and Beijing wants to neutralize Europe, or at least、uh, in this equation of human rights and what it considers to be domestic issues. Who is likely to win in this three-way battle: Beijing, Washington D.C., or Berlin slash Brussels? And Noah, I'll just have you、uh, start first, and then Glacier can answer. 
Well, this is going to be a long game. I think we are at the very beginning of this new era in which China is seen by many countries in the West and also by many of its neighbors as a threat. It's probably too early to talk about winners and losers. Um, I think it will depend heavily on developments in China, uh, but also developments in the U.S. and Europe. Um, you know, what if what if Donald Trump is sitting in the White House four years from now? What if China takes actions uh, in relation to Taiwan? I don't think this is necessarily going to be a game where we see you know. We're going to know who's won or who's lost. Uh, I think it's going to be a, a really long struggle, you know, in Europe, in the U.S., and in China to sort of find the right policies and figure out how to interact with each other and how to engage with each other after decades in which you know we've just seen a huge acceleration in economic engagement, in globalization. We're now heading. In the other direction, there, there's risk of military conflicts in the Asia region, South China Sea, Taiwan Straits, etc. I think it's much too early to say who's going to win or lose in this game, and we're just going to have to see how it develops. We may not uh, have an answer to that for many decades. Glacier, what do you think? Who's going to be the winner in this? I tend to agree with Nola saying that it will take a long time to see who's winning and losing, and I think the concept of Winners in terms of international politics is a very retrospective one. Like decades ago, we thought the U.S. is the winner of the Cold War, but as time goes by, we see different problems coming up, and we are now into this kind of rivalry situation again. So I'd say it's somehow it's still too early to say who's winning. But I think eventually, democratic countries will have to. Um, not forming a specific block, but they will have to come together to combat the overspilling of authoritarian regime coming from China and other authoritarian regimes as well. And I think European countries will try to delay the point that when they have to like really make it very clear that they are choosing values that they uphold other than economic benefits, or they at least prefer values to economic benefits. They will just play neutral until. Uh, until they are really feeling being forced to do that because they don't want to lose the money. As a Hong Konger, I am kind of afraid that it might be too late for all of the democratic countries to finally decide that they have to act unitedly. Because I feel like the the situation in Hong Kong or in other places like、uh, Tibet or Mongolia cannot wait that long. But I do hope that. The values like human rights and freedom that we treasure will somehow triumph at the end. That was Glacier Kuang, a political and digital rights activist from Hong Kong, who is also a columnist and doctoral student at the University of Hamburg. And my other guest is Noah Barkin, who is a senior visiting fellow with the German Marshall Fund's Asia Program, as well as managing editor of Rhodium Group's China Practice. Thank you both for being on Common Ground. Thanks, Raya. Good to be here. Thank you. Our senior producer is Dina El Sayed, and I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Thank you for listening, and please join us again on April 12th for another episode of Common Ground. Our program is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Energy. Thank you also to our partners, the German Marshall Fund and Berliner Zeitung English Edition. 
You can download all of our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out our website, commongroundberlin.com. 